This afternoon, FBI and federal agents swarmed a home in Dighton and arrested a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman in connection with a leak of highly sensitive military intelligence documents. The suspect came out of his home with his hands behind his head, was handcuffed, and taken into custody. It's Thursday, April 13th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, the latest on the case coming up. Also, President Biden has taken a page from his America First predecessor when it comes to tariffs and other policies once deemed as protectionist. Recent earthquakes in Syria exposed the devastating needs of people living in the country, raising questions about the impact of U.S. sanctions. Sanctions should be left. I don't think we could do any harm to the world if we do maintenance to our rescue gears. These stories, the forecast, and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A 21-year-old member of the U.S. military is now under arrest for allegedly leaking highly classified documents on Russia's war in Ukraine. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the Pentagon's described the disclosure as a deliberate criminal act. Brigadier General Pat Ryder, a Pentagon spokesman, said the breach has prompted a review of the way the military is handling secret material. We do have stringent guidelines in place for safeguarding classified and sensitive information. This was a deliberate criminal act. Shortly after Ryder spoke, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the arrest of 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. Despite repeated questions, the Pentagon spokesman declined to say why such a young member of the military would have access to such sensitive documents. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. President Biden says he's concerned sensitive government documents were released, but adds that as far as he knows, there's nothing contemporaneous that is of great consequence. Security revelations, which have proven to be a diplomatic embarrassment for the U.S., were addressed in Ireland, where the president appeared before parliament and praised the country for taking in 80,000 Ukrainian refugees. Apart from the diplomacy mission, NPR's Tamara Keith reports Biden's remarks also got personal. When Biden stepped up to the lectern in the well of the chamber, he looked skyward. Well, Mom, <laughs> you said it would happen. Biden often quotes the wisdom of his mother, whom he credits with teaching him Irish values. Above all, loyalty. And he came back to her again at the end of his remarks. This is one of the great honors of my career. Better be here today. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. You have no idea what this, my greatest regret, and I'm going to sound like a kid, but my mom's not here to hear it. Friday, the president travels to County Mayo, where his ancestors lived before coming to America. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Dublin. Former President Donald Trump's being deposed in New York for alleged fraud. The Republicans meeting with lawyers for the state's attorney general, Letitia James. She's suing Trump and his three eldest children for allegedly engaging in illegal business practices. The lawsuit is not related to felony criminal charges the Manhattan District Attorney's Office leveled against Trump over hush money payments during Trump's 2016 campaign to a woman who claims she had an extramarital affair with Trump. Trump denies the allegation. Also today, a Washington, D.C. appeals court declined to shield Trump from the first of two civil defamation lawsuits brought by columnist E. Jean Carroll. She accuses the former president of raping her decades ago and lying about it in 2019. Trump has repeatedly characterized illegal actions against him as a Democratic-led political witch hunt. Trump's running for president in 2024. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. More now on the arrest this afternoon in the Pentagon Leaks case. A member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard is in federal custody after he was charged in connection with a recent leak of classified U.S. intelligence documents. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, Jack Teixeira is to make his first appearance in Boston federal court tomorrow. The FBI and heavily armed tactical agents descended on a quiet street in North Dighton early this afternoon to arrest Teixeira. The 21-year-old wearing a t-shirt and shorts was taken into custody outside a home. United States Attorney General Merrick Garland says Teixeira is wanted in connection with an investigation into unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Teixeira is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. FBI agents took Teixeira into custody earlier this afternoon without incident. The classified documents posted online revealed government secrets about the war in Ukraine. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Some hospitals and clinics that provide abortion services say they plan to continue care as usual. That despite a federal appeals court ruling that affirms limitations for now on the use of one abortion pill. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports the medical providers feel protected following action by Governor Maura Healey earlier this week. An appeals court says mifepristone can remain on the market, but only for pregnancies up to seven weeks, not 10, as is current practice. The court also temporarily stopped prescriptions via telehealth and said only doctors can prescribe the medication. But Dr. Catherine White at Boston Medical Center says attorneys are telling her Massachusetts does not have to comply with those changes. Thanks to Governor Healy's order, we believe that we can still practice the same way that we did yesterday. But I think this is an evolving situation and our lawyers are still looking at the opinion just to make sure that that's true. Healy says the state's shield law protects abortion providers from lawsuits initiated out of state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. The Massachusetts House this afternoon approved its massive tax relief bill. It offers tax relief for parents, caregivers, renters, and seniors. It also cuts the short-term capital gains taxes and changes the state tax. Several more legislative hurdles need to be cleared before it becomes law. In the forecast, 76 degrees now clear through the night tonight. Overnight lows about 64. Tomorrow, sunny and warm. Not quite as warm as today. Tomorrow's highs around 74. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Juana Summers. The Biden administration is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to block a federal appeals court decision that significantly curbs access to a common abortion pill. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit made a ruling that preserves the Food and Drug Administration's approval of mifepristone for now, but with new limitations. NPR's Sarah McCammon has been following the story and joins us now. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Juana. So, Sarah, if people can still get this abortion pill, why is the Biden administration appealing to the Supreme Court? Well, because this Fifth Circuit decision makes the pill a lot harder to get. You know, the Obama and Biden administrations had rolled back certain restrictions on mifepristone. They stopped requiring patients to make multiple in-person visits to get the pills. They allowed the pills to be prescribed 
up to 10 weeks instead of just seven weeks of pregnancy, and they could be sent by mail. Now, this ruling undoes all of that. So even though it's still on the market, abortion rights opponents are calling this a victory. Here's lawyer Aaron Hawley with Alliance Defending Freedom, which is representing the groups that filed the original lawsuit challenging Mifepristone's FDA approval. So this puts us back in a position we would have been prior to those major changes in 2016. It would require three in-person visits. It would move the gestation limit back from 10 weeks uh, to seven weeks. And Sarah, what will this mean for abortion providers? I mean, that's still being sorted out, but it depends somewhat on where they're located, how they provide care, whether they're in person or not. Monica Sipak is with WISP, which offers reproductive health care over telehealth. She says they're switching to another abortion pill option because they believe it's still safe to send it in the mail. No, we will not be shipping mifepristone. We will only be shipping um, misoprostol starting Saturday. However, this will take us one to two weeks to fully implement and one, another provider, Carafem, told me they're also thinking through whether they can provide mifepristone in some states but not others, because there's also a conflicting federal court ruling in play here that may allow access for people in some states. Remind us, if you can, about that case and how it factors into this latest ruling. So as you might remember, 18 Democratic state attorneys general sued to try to protect access to mifepristone. A federal judge in Washington state responded by ordering the FDA not to disrupt access. The Department of Justice is asking for clarity because these cases are in direct conflict. But for now, providers in some of those states that were part of that group think they can continue prescribing mifepristone. For example, I talked to Dr. Colleen McNicholas at Planned Parenthood in Illinois. She thinks between that ruling from the Washington state federal judge and a favorable political climate in Illinois, Planned Parenthood can keep doing what they've been doing, which is prescribing mifepristone up to 11 weeks, using telehealth, and mailing the pills within Illinois only, at least for right now. Okay, and what about states that are not part of that lawsuit? Right, there are several states like California and New York that aren't part of the lawsuit, but where abortion is legal. Dr. Kristen Brandy is an OBGYN in one of those states, New Jersey. She told me she's not sure what she's going to do about prescribing mifepristone. She says this ruling could be burdensome for her patients because it requires those multiple doctor visits. If we have to have people come in three times in person, that's definitely more than most providers are requiring patients to come in for because that's just not necessary. It's something that we were doing over telehealth, which also sounds like we can't provide anymore. I mean, Sarah, you have been covering this issue extensively, so I'd like to ask you, was there anything else in this ruling that either surprised you or you think it's important for us to know? Well, the court seemed interested in the plaintiff's arguments about what are known as Comstock laws. These are 19th century anti-obscenity laws that prohibit mailing abortion-related items and other materials. The Biden administration says they don't apply to abortion pills, but anti-abortion groups say they do. The Fifth Circuit seemed open to the idea that they might. This is just Mm. an issue to watch because it could be significant in future cases related to reproductive health care. NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. As President Biden gears up for his re-election bid, there's a central theme he keeps repeating. Invest in America. It's a vision of how Biden wants the government to help reshape the economy. It's something experts call industrial policy. NPR's White House correspondent Asma Khalid has more. It's a busy morning at Marlin Steel in Baltimore. This laser is using light to cut steel. 
Drew Greenblatt owns this manufacturing plant where workers cut, bend, and weld steel into specialty wire baskets. They'll end up everywhere, from labs to factories. In 2020, when COVID hit and supply chains got snarled, his business got a boost. And we started making IV poles. We also started making things like the sanitizer stands where you put your hand underneath a little soap dispenser. That stopped coming in from overseas. Test tube racks stopped coming in from overseas. The pandemic sent a message. American companies should not be putting their eggs in the Chinese basket. It's just too dangerous. But Greenblatt was already on this mission. He has half a dozen American flags around his factory floor. He's pleased Biden is, in his words, following Donald Trump's vision to make more things in America. But right now it's wildly unfair to build in America compared to China because we have so many things stacked against us. Greenblatt wants Biden to go further. He wants less regulation and a tax break for R&D. In the end, he says supporting American manufacturing is smart policy and smart politics. Whoever can get more factories growing faster in America is going to win a lot of votes. Biden is touting his economic agenda a lot lately, on the road touring factories like this semiconductor facility in Durham last month. This is the largest investment in manufacturing in the history of North Carolina. Experts say if you look at the whole package of economic policies this White House has rolled out, it's rather unprecedented in recent times. Biden's team is systematically crafting industrial policy to try to shape markets and the private sector. Brian Deese was a top economic advisor to Biden and helped lead this push. We are, for the first time since really the 1960s and in in many cases earlier than that, using targeted public investment over multiple years to try to crowd in private capital. They're doing this in a few ways. They're giving out subsidies for semiconductor plants and electric vehicles. They're also keeping Chinese products out by maintaining the Trump-era tariffs and imposing sweeping export controls to limit China's access to technology. And they're doing this all out in the open, which is even more unusual, according to Danny Roderick. He's an economist at Harvard. Among economists and mainstream policymakers, I think industrial policy for a number of decades now has been a kind of a dirty word. And I think that sort of has completely changed now. It's changed because politics on the right and the left have changed. And politicians have decided China is a common foe. Roderick says the environment now is sort of akin to the fears the U.S. had of the Soviet Union in the 1950s. That sparked government programs that eventually led to technological inventions like GPS and the Internet. But there's also a huge difference that that the United States was never as economically integrated with the Soviet Union as it is now with China. The U.S. and China depend on each other so much for trade. But the Biden team says China doesn't play fair. Here's Brian Deese again. A purely laissez-faire, trickle-down view that ignores the role of China in the global economy, I think, is, is, doesn't work. The White House says the Chinese government provides enormous subsidies and steals technology. So the U.S. has to intervene to help American companies and American workers. It's clear when I spoke to the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, that this mission is also about national security. We buy 92 percent of advanced semiconductors from Taiwan, utterly vulnerable position for the United States to be in. 
She says there are certain industries, like chips, that are just too important to be largely outsourced. And so the government is offering funding to companies to build factories in America. During the 80s and 90s, when so many manufacturing plants shut down, she says there were devastating economic consequences. She knows firsthand. My dad, he and all of his friends were put out of work when all of the jobs at his watch factory went to China. But for decades, many politicians on both sides of the aisle proudly supported free trade, even as America's manufacturing power declined. We were just, I guess, a little bit slow to wake up for it. COVID was the great eye-opener. Nobody was talking about supply chains four years ago. The pandemic accelerated the conversation. But Donald Trump's election, and specifically his appeal to blue-collar workers, also sparked some soul-searching. There's been a transformation on the part of everybody. Scott Paul is president of a lobby group called the Alliance for American Manufacturing. You could cut and paste some of Trump's trade policies, and they're now the Democratic platform. In the year 2000, Biden, like many Republicans and Democrats, voted to normalize trade relations with China. But some 20 years later, the political debate has shifted. Christine McDaniel with George Mason University is one of the rare voices in Washington openly skeptical of this shift. Industrial policy means that through government, taxes, subsidies, incentives, rules, regulations, you are taking resources from one part of the economy and reallocating them to another part, okay? Government is uh, notorious, unfortunately, they just don't have a very good track record for uh, picking winners and losers. But supporters of industrial policy say the U.S. has always helped out companies in one way or another, and so the debate ought to be about how to do this most effectively. And Biden's supporters bristle at the idea that the president is copying his predecessor. Even if the mission is the same, they say Biden has better plans and is following through. Back at the wire factory in Baltimore, Drew Greenblatt says it doesn't matter what Republicans or Democrats are saying in Washington. I don't care about messaging. Care about I only care about policies that impact my factory. So whether workers. or not people are saying make things in America. That's all it's all word salad. But he insists supporting American manufacturing is a winning political proposition. And as he told me, whoever can get more factories up and running in America is gonna win a lot of votes. Asma Khalid, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, the politically messy process of trying to find a temporary replacement for Dianne Feinstein on the Senate Judiciary Committee as she handles a health issue. And in about seven minutes, Chicago Bulls come from behind win against the Toronto Raptors in the NBA playoff play-in tournament, a game fueled by the screams of a nine-year-old. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org Tanglewood. And the Master's in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a degree that helps students translate data insights into dynamic business models. bc.edu analytics. Stocks gained ground today. The Dow rose more than 1%. S&P had its highest close since February. It was up one and a third percent and the Nasdaq rose about 2%. This is WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. Warm and dry conditions combined with a strong wind mean an elevated potential of fire. Be careful if you're cooking outdoors tonight. Should be clear and dry overnight. Pretty warm. Temperatures about 64. Tomorrow, another sunny day. Still warm, but it could peak at about 74 degrees. 76 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries. Brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. And I'm Juana Summers. Now a rare look at the hard life in Syria. The recent earthquakes that displaced tens of thousands of people there are just the latest calamity. They follow 12 years of civil war and the government's lethal response and the hardships of a policy that is increasingly being questioned, economic sanctions imposed by the U.S. and European allies. NPR's Aya Batrawi went to part of the country that's under government control to see how it all adds up. I flew into Latakia a few weeks after February's earthquakes aboard a humanitarian aid flight from the United Arab Emirates. Ten people who were severely injured in the earthquakes are carried onto this cavernous cargo plane that's equipped with medical beds and ventilators. They're airlifted back to Abu Dhabi because Syria can't provide them with the treatment they need. The UAE even sent Syria new ambulances, another need laid bare by the earthquakes. So why is Syria's healthcare system in such dire need of help? The answer depends on who you ask. It's gotten really hard for us under U.S. sanctions. We've depleted a large amount of our stockpile of medicine. And in some cases, we can't fix or upgrade our medical equipment. And this was really clear after the earthquakes. We didn't have what we needed to deal with this disaster. That's Dr. Hawaz and Mahlouf a senior physician at one of the hospitals here in Latakia. He says hospitals are lacking MRI machines, CAT scans, heart monitors, and even anesthesia and cancer medications. Oil and banking sanctions were toughened over the past decade to punish President Bashar al-Assad's government as it attacked rebels, bombed civilians, and jailed tens of thousands. The U.S. says its sanctions target Assad's regime and not humanitarian assistance. But doctors in Syria say they have trouble importing basic supplies because foreign banks fear financial penalties. <laughs> Dr. Mohammed Qusay al-Khalil is the director of Jebla's main public hospital, just south of Latakia. We're in the emergency room. He points toward two ventilators covered in plastic. They don't work, and the hospital can't buy new ones. Like many in this part of Syria, he's a loyal supporter of President Bashar al-Assad, whose photo hangs on every floor of this hospital. Dr. Al-Khalil 
blames U.S. sanctions for the shortages and constant electricity cuts. Syrians deserve a life of dignity and the best health care. How can they be punished like this? Outside the main lobby are photos of 14 nurses and medical staff killed here in 2016 when Islamic State suicide bombers targeted the city and this hospital as it was tending to the wounded. I come across two elevators that were damaged in the attack. And since then, they haven't even been able to get the Italian parts to fix the elevators. So there's only one functioning elevator in this hospital. And when that one doesn't work or it needs maintenance, they literally have to carry patients up the stairs. Here, uh, the X-ray department. We take the stairs, and he shows me two X-ray machines. Only one of them works at this hospital that serves a million people in the area. In the prenatal ward, a newborn baby boy named Hamza is breathing with the help of a tiny oxygen mask. The metal cribs here are covered in deep orange rust. But it's not just hospitals struggling to cope from years of war. The head of Syria's civil defense says his teams didn't have enough equipment to save lives after the earthquakes. Major General Safwan Bahloul says they were in need of basic tools like jackhammers and hydraulic lifts. Sanctions should be left. I don't think we could do any harm to the world if we do maintenance to our rescue gears or our lorries or our cars. The World Bank estimates the quakes caused over $5 billion in damage in Syria. Habloul says 10,000 homes were destroyed, including his own in government-controlled areas. People here in Syria, they need a lot of help. We need a lot of food, we need a lot of fuel, we need support. After the earthquakes, the U.S. eased sanctions for six months. In a written statement, the State Department said this was intended to make clear that anyone can provide emergency aid to Syria without the risk of sanctions. The U.S. has said sanctions, which the European Union also imposes, are supposed to prevent other countries from supporting Assad's government. But things are changing. Arab countries that once backed the rebels are rebuilding ties with Syria after the earthquakes and as their hopes of ousting Assad fade. This has raised questions about current U.S. policy in Syria and whether sanctions are the answer. So there's no question that the sanctions are limiting the freedom of action of the Assad government and its ability to make war on the Syrian people. There's also no question that the sanctions are hurting the Syrian people. Howard Schatz is a senior economist at the RAND Corporation who's written about sanctions. He says the U.S. is faced with a tough choice. Is it more important to limit the freedom of action of the Assad government and its ability to attack, to make war on the Syrian people, or is it more important to give the Assad government more freedom of action and alleviate the problems faced by the Syrian people. That's the big choice. Former U.S. officials, Syrian activists, and experts recently called for an overhaul of U.S. policy in Syria. Among them is Mohammad Ali Ghanem, who heads policy at the Syrian American Council, a D.C.-based advocacy group. He accuses the Syrian government of siphoning off earthquake aid and blames Syria's suffering squarely on the Assad regime. He says that in the absence of stronger military support for rebels, Sanctions remain one of the few options the U.S. has been willing to use. It's the only tool in the toolbox that the United States and Europe are willing to use towards accountability in Syria. Now, if you take away that tool, the toolbox is empty. There are no tools left. 
He asks, without sanctions, what's left? That's the question Washington now faces, even as the Biden administration insists on political change in Syria first. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Latakia, Syria. Sometimes as a parent, all you want is a little quiet and for your kids to just listen. But sometimes... Sometimes caving into your kids and letting them be as loud as they want to be is a win for the whole team. Chicago Bulls player DeMar DeRozan knows that firsthand. You know, she just said, Dad, can I come to the Toronto game? DeRozan is talking there about his nine-year-old daughter, DR. The Bulls faced the Toronto Raptors last night as part of a tournament to make the NBA playoffs. And DeMar DeRozan used to play for the Raptors. He and his family had lived there for years before he joined the Bulls. So, of course, DR had asked to skip school and cheer on the team. I remember going to all the Toronto games when she was a kid, and I almost said no because she in school back home. Um, I'm glad I did. Um, I owe her some money for sure. You see, the Bulls were down by as much as 19 points at one point, but every now and then, a voice would just cut through the crowd. If you're Chicago here, hey, she went one for two. Yep. That's the sound of a comeback. DR DeRozan tried to get the Raptors to miss free throws by screaming at the top of her lungs every time they went to the line. <laughs> and they missed 18 of those shots. The Bulls won, and DR was an instant social media star. DeMar DeRozan said his daughter can't miss any more school to watch the playoffs, but I think some fans might want him to reconsider. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, Russian President Vladimir Putin is expected to sign a new law that cracks down on draft dodging. That story in about 15 minutes. Nice July weather we're having, sunny and dry, giving way to a beautiful evening, a clear night tonight. Tonight's lows should be in the mid-60s. Tomorrow's sunny skies, not quite as summery as today has been, highs in the mid-70s. For Saturday, clouds move in, temperatures only in the mid-50s. Sunday, chance of showers, right about the low 50s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals. With over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits. Sharing Sherpa with Robert Beer. On view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, marking 10 years. There's been two large explosions at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. You can hear the ambulances. You can hear the helicopter. People are responding with everything they can, but it's just not clear if it's going to be enough right now. We reflect on service and hope. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The FBI has arrested a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard in connection with the leaking of classified documents that were posted on social media. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira was taken into custody today after a fast-moving investigation by the government. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder declined to answer specific questions, saying that the matter has been referred to the Justice Department. It is important to understand uh, that we do have stringent guidelines in place for safeguarding classified and sensitive information. This was a deliberate criminal act. 
a violation of those guidelines. Deshera is accused of leaking a trove of government documents, including highly sensitive information about the war in Ukraine. The Justice Department says it will ask the Supreme Court to step in and protect the availability of a widely used abortion pill. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports the move comes nearly a week after a federal judge in Texas ordered the suspension of the use of mifepristone. Mifepristone lies at the center of a nationwide legal fight right now, including litigation that began in Texas. In that case, a federal judge ordered the drug to be taken off the market as of Friday. The Biden administration appealed. On Wednesday, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that mifepristone can remain available, but prohibited it from being prescribed after seven weeks of pregnancy or sent by mail. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Justice Department strongly disagrees with the appeals court ruling, and he says the department will ask the Supreme Court to intervene to protect Americans' access to the drug. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Stocks closed higher today on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 383 points. The Nasdaq Composite up 236. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Public safety is always front and center for the Boston Marathon, especially since the bombing 10 years ago this week. WBUR's Alex Ashlock reports security for Monday's race will include local, state, and federal agencies. Uniformed and undercover security will be out in force along the course during Monday's race. Joe Bonavolanta, special agent in charge of the FBI's Boston field office, says there's no credible threat against the race, but everyone should still be vigilant. If you see someone or something suspicious, say something. It could be your neighbor, coworker, classmate, somebody you see in person or virtually on social media. Spectators can expect to have bags searched at security checkpoints along the course, especially closer to the finish line. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock. It's going to cost UMass students more to attend classes in the fall. The Board of Trustees voted to raise both tuition and room and board in the new academic year. Tuition will go up 2.5% for in-state undergraduate and graduate students. And room and board will go up 4.5% at UMass Amherst, 2.7% on the Dartmouth and Lowell campuses. And the southeastern part of Massachusetts is under an air quality alert. That means the air is considered to be unhealthful for sensitive groups, including older um, adults, people with heart disease, and those with asthma. The State Department of Environmental Protection alert until 11 o'clock tonight covers Cape and Islands, as well as Bristol, Plymouth, and Norfolk counties. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Clear skies overnight tonight. Should be about 64 degrees, so not too chilly at all. And for tomorrow, sunny and warm once again. Maybe a few clouds around. Temperature should peak at 74. Then the weekend's going to be a lot different. A crush of clouds on Saturday should be stuck in the mid-50s. Sunday, cloudy with a chance of showers, only reaching about 52. 78 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. 
Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. In just a few minutes, we'll talk about how Russian President Vladimir Putin is attempting to change the law to slow down Russians trying to dodge the draft. And meanwhile, here in the U.S., California Senator Dianne Feinstein is facing pressure from fellow Democrats to resign. The 89-year-old Democrat has not voted since February as she recovers from a diagnosis of shingles. Her absence in the Senate is effectively stalling Democrats' efforts to confirm President Biden's judicial nominees. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now. Deirdre, who are the Democrats urging Feinstein to step down? So far, Juana, it's just been a small number of public calls for Feinstein to resign. Fellow California Democrat Ro Khanna was the first to tweet about Feinstein. He said, quote, we need to put the country ahead of personal loyalty. While she has had a lifetime of public service, it is obvious she can no longer fulfill her duties. Another House Democrat, Dean Phillips of Minnesota, echoed Khanna's call, saying, quote, it is now a dereliction of duty to remain in the Senate and a dereliction of duty for those who agree to remain quiet. Kana insists many Democrats privately have been concerned about Senator Feinstein's ability to perform her duties of a senator. I will say, as someone who's been on the Hill, there have been some private and some public calls in recent months uh, raising questions about her health. Former Speaker Nancy Pelosi herself has praised Feinstein's record and suggested no one would be pushing for a sick male member of the Mm -hmm. Senate to step down. We should say Feinstein already announced she's going to retire at the end of her term in 2024, and there's already a competitive race in full swing. Okay, so a lot of people there are talking about Senator Feinstein, but what about her? How has she been responding to these calls from some other Democrats who say she should step down? She really hasn't directly responded to those calls, but she tried to get out ahead of any new pressure on her to resign by putting out a statement last night. It did acknowledge that her absence is taking longer than she anticipated, and it basically said she realizes her inability to vote as a member of the Judiciary Committee is having an impact. She said she's asking Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to temporarily replace her on the committee until she can return. The statement last night has appeared to tamp down any additional public calls. Okay, for people who do not watch Congress as closely as you do, tell us about the impact of Feinstein's absence. What are the stakes here? Well, there's such a thin majority. So the main agenda for Senate Democrats right now is confirming President Biden's judicial nominees and nominees to administration posts. There are currently 10 nominees for federal judgeships eligible for a vote inside the Senate Judiciary and two more in the pipeline for consideration. If those nominees don't have bipartisan support with without Feinstein's vote on that committee, they'll likely be stalled out and won't get a full vote by the Senate, the full Senate. We've seen in recent weeks who federal judges are could have a really pivotal effect on whether policies can remain in place, like access to abortion medication. The chairman, Jake Durbin, of that committee announced his panel is going to have a hearing soon on abortion rulings, recent uh, recent abortion rulings. So, Deirdre, could a different Democrat simply swap in for Senator Feinstein on the judiciary panel? It's not as easy as it sounds. A spokesman for Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that Schumer is going to ask the Senate next week to replace Feinstein on that committee. But committee assignments are approved through a resolution by the full Senate. So they're going to have to pass a new one. One way would be to ask for unanimous consent, but a single senator could object and block that. 
GOP sources I talked to today have a lot of questions. They say they need to be answered about who a replacement would be, how long a replacement would last. So it's unlikely, it seems, that this would get unanimous consent. So any new resolution would need 60 votes in the Senate. And as we know, Democrats are operating with the 51-49 Senate majority like right now. I would expect this issue is going to take up some time next week. We'll see whether Republicans or enough Republicans are willing to go along with Schumer's effort to replace Feinstein on the committee. It's complicated, too, because Republicans have had their own absences. The top Senate Republican, Mitch McConnell, was actually out for several weeks after he had a fall last week. He tweeted out this afternoon he's going to be back on Monday. But McConnell is likely going to weigh in on this and have some influence. When he was Senate Majority Leader, he put such a huge priority on confirming then-President Trump's uh, nominees for the federal bench. So he's someone who really understands how important these nominees ultimately can be in all kinds of rulings. NPR's Deirdre Walsh, thank you. Thank you. Russian President Vladimir Putin is expected to sign a new law cracking down on draft dodging. The proposed law raced through Russia's lower and upper houses of parliament this week, and that potentially has big implications for Russia's war plans in Ukraine. To help break it all down for us is NPR's Charles Maines from Moscow. Hey, Charles. Hi there. All right, so Charles, what would this law actually do? Well, you know, on a basic level, it makes it very difficult for Russians, uh, primarily Russian men, but some women, to avoid being drafted or conscripted into the war in Ukraine. You know, until now, call-ups had been done through a paper draft summons. In other words, a recruitment officer would deliver a letter to your home or place of work with instructions to report for duty. Uh, that's now been replaced or will be replaced by electronic notices, so mm. emails uh, that are issued through an e-governance portal uh, that Russians use to pay utility bills, taxes, and that sort of thing. But the key is that any email draft notice would be binding uh, from the moment the government hits send. Huh. Well, what does that mean in like practical terms? Well, for one, uh, Russians who are issued notices are immediately banned from leaving the country. Oh. Uh, that primarily concerns men of conscription age, 18 to 27 years old, but also reservists and other members of the military. And those who don't show up to the recruitment office soon face restrictions on everything from getting bank loans to driver's licenses, uh, even acquiring or selling property. Uh, meanwhile, those who refuse service outright risk potential prison time. So for, for Russians who, for whatever reason, don't want to participate in the war in Ukraine, uh, their options are shrinking fast, uh, especially given that this bill raced through the parliament in just a couple days. Why does the Kremlin say this law is necessary? Well, it helps to back up to the mass mobilization drive from last fall. Uh, this is when President Vladimir Putin called up an additional 300,000 troops for the war in Ukraine, which did several things. You know, on the one hand, it provided reinforcements for the front line, uh, but it also prompted hundreds of thousands of Russians, uh, particularly younger Russians, to flee for the borders uh, to avoid the draft. And even Russians who stayed often managed to dodge military service by switching addresses or going into hiding or even ignoring the draft notices outright. In fact, the Kremlin and lawmakers point to the chaos of that mobilization drive in justifying the new law, uh, saying it was time to close these loopholes and modernize the system. All right. So, Charles, does this mean those still in Russia are, are facing military service immediately? Like, are they facing a second wave of mobilization? 
Well, the Kremlin insists no, and whether more Russians are called up to fight in Ukraine would seem to depend on what happens over the next several months, uh, particularly as Ukraine prepares to launch a counteroffensive. You know, recently the Kremlin's focus has been on recruiting volunteers, you know, signing up contract soldiers by offering far higher salaries to fight in Ukraine than most could earn at home. And it's easy to understand why. You know, the mobilization announcement was deeply unpopular uh, last year. We saw protests across the country, the troops themselves complaining of being ill-equipped or ill-trained, you know, and all of this led President Putin publicly to acknowledge mistakes had been made. Hmm. And so as the Kremlin seems to be preparing for a long war in Ukraine, the new approach appears to be replenishing forces, but on a much slower burn. And this new law would allow them to do it. NPR's Charles Maines, thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Rising prices, rising interest rates, layoffs. Well, here's another way to gauge the state of our economy right now. Car loans. More and more people are falling behind on their car payments, and the consequences of that delinquency can be swift and severe. NPR's Arzu Razvani takes a look at why many people are now struggling. 59-year-old Kyle Mestis has always loved working as a traffic controller, directing drivers around road construction. I can be in the mountains one day. I can be working in downtown the next day. And I'm not stuck in an office. I meet new people constantly. His $60,000 salary went a long way in his hometown of Denver, Colorado. It easily covered his monthly car payments. It was quite easy. And a lot of times I had actually made extra payments, so I was ahead. All of that came to a screeching halt in December when Mestis suddenly lost his job. The timing of getting laid off before Christmas and then going through the holidays, my mother dying, me having to get there, it was just horrendous. He dipped into his retirement account and burned through his savings to get by, but it wasn't enough. He fell behind on his car payments. Then, one recent morning, things went from bad to worse. It was two weeks ago, and I got up, went outside, and I was like, where's my car? His Kia Sorento was repossessed overnight, and it's been slow going ever since. It's been hard, you know, not being able to get around anywhere. I can't run an errand, so it's been hard. More and more Americans are falling behind on their car payments. For low-income households, delinquencies are now greater than they were at the peak of the Great Recession. Amy Martin of S&P Global says there are several reasons for this. Many borrowers, they're getting squeezed with a higher monthly car payment, as well as higher food and housing expenses. The average monthly payment for a new car loan hit a record $780 in January. It's not much less for used cars. As COVID-era federal aid has expired, people's savings have also slumped. Add stubborn inflation into this mix, and people just don't have the money they once used to. But the good news is we have not seen the corresponding level of default. That's Jonathan Smoke, chief economist with Cox Automotive. He says while late payments are up, even those who are facing repossession have a pretty good chance of keeping their cars. And that's partly because vehicles are retaining their value better than ever. The lender has more options to work with the borrower to restructure the loan, to keep them in the car, and to help get them out of the situation. 
Smoke says there's one other thing that's helped people hang on to their cars, low unemployment. That may actually be what helps Kyle Mestis get back into his Kia. He's landed a new job directing traffic again and starts this month. If he can quickly cobble together the $2,500 he owes through his GoFundMe page and his first paycheck, he'll get his car back. I'm hoping and I'm trying. If he can't, not only will his car be auctioned off, the dent in his credit score will make it harder to get any car down the road. Arzu Resvani, NPR News, Los Angeles. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman was arrested in Dighton today in the leak of secret U.S. intelligence documents. That story is in about 15 minutes. And coming up next, the Mass General Hospital doctor who ran the Boston Marathon 10 years ago then went to work to perform surgery on the bombing survivors. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet School's Next Generation, highlighting the best arts training in Boston at the Citizens Bank Opera House on Friday, May 19th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Red Sox lost big time to Tampa Bay today. The Sox have lost every game in the four-game series. They return uh, home for a weekend series with the Angels. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies tonight. Lows about 64. Sunny and warm tomorrow. Highs about 74. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths. Creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Conductor Jean-Andrea Nozeda collects the finest antique string instruments, which, in his mind, are like sports cars. If you, to a good driver, you give a good Ferrari, the driver also will drive faster. (laughs) Which is why he loans them to his musicians, the National Symphony Orchestra's best-kept secret. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. 30,000 athletes will compete in Monday's Boston Marathon, among them a trauma surgeon from Mass General Hospital who will be running for the 14th straight time. My name is uh, Dr. David King. Uh, I'm training for this year's marathon. Uh, We're finally in the taper phase, so I'm out at the Medford High School track just to knock out uh, about seven sort of easy miles. Well, he makes it look easy. He's used to the pressure. King's job is to perform surgery on people who've just been shot in a car wreck or struck by a bomb. He's in the Army Reserve as a combat surgeon. He's operated on more of his fellow troops in Iraq and Afghanistan than he can count. He signed up for the Army a month before September 11th 
and saw his deployments as a way to protect America from another terrorist attack. Then came the 2013 Boston Marathon. King ran the marathon that day, and his race went well. 2013 was the first time for me I didn't walk at least some portion of Heartbreak Hill. For some reason, I had the juice, and so I squeezed it. About an hour after King crossed the finish line, he hailed a cab and checked his phone. There was a flurry of urgent text messages asking if he was all right. He didn't know about the bombing, but something made him tell the cabbie not to take him home, but to take him to Mass General, where he worked. When I pulled up in front of MGH, there wasn't any sense of chaos. It just looked like a regular, quiet Monday. But for some reason, I decided to get out and went to our trauma on-call room where I changed into scrubs, put a surgical cap on, and grabbed my eye protection. And then I used an unusual stairwell to descend into the emergency department where when I opened the door and turned the corner, I saw the first wave of patients just arriving. And when I saw the pattern of injury, I recognized it as something I'd seen on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan. Bilateral lower extremity injury combined with fragmentation, that is, um, you know, little pieces of metal or wood paper that had impacted really the entire rest of your body. This is a fairly characteristic pattern of injury for IEDs, and by any measure, these bombs on Boylston were improvised devices. But in the real-time action of trying to take care of people, I still didn't know exactly what happened. We were depending on staff who were watching the news coming into the operating room and telling us, but the farthest thing from my mind was an act of terrorism. I didn't do anything unique. I did the same thing all the surgeons did, and that is operated on the first patient I saw who needed surgery, and then as soon as that was done, went and grabbed the next patient that needed surgery, and then the next, and then the next. And because I ran that morning, I was naturally up very early to fuel, so breakfast. And at one point later that night, I remember standing at the operating room table just feeling a tiny bit woozy. And so there's a funny story here, if there can ever be anything funny that can occur on that day. Once all the patient's index operations were done, the entire trauma team assembled in a conference room. And I remember sitting down for the first time in that conference room, having this moment of just deceleration, thinking to myself, geez, it's been like 24 or 30 hours or something. And all I had was a banana and some Gatorade on the course. And I turned to a medical student who was helping like everyone else. And I asked them if they knew where the nutrition cabinet was And I said, I don't feel so well. Can you just run there and grab crackers, orange juice, ginger ale, anything? He ran down the hall, came back a few minutes later with a um, biohazard bag, the only bag he could find on short notice. I opened the biohazard bag, and what he had accidentally done was open the staff refrigerator, and he had, like, people's lunches someone's taco salad that they had brought from home and a thermos of coffee or, you know, he had just opened the wrong door and just grabbed anything he could in a laudable desire to help. I'm not going to lie. I I ate some of that food (laughs) and then apologized to our nursing staff whose lunch I had eaten. But sometimes I think, geez, did did I really laugh that day? There's nothing to laugh at. 
after something like that happens. But did I really chuckle in that moment? I, I did, and so did some other people. And I always wonder, should I feel guilty about that? And sometimes when I feel guilty for having a laugh in that moment, I have to remind myself that everyone copes just a little bit differently. The surgery and the reoperations and the retriage went on for days, and it got to the point that people would not leave the hospital. Nurses, doctors, anesthetists, respiratory therapists, food service workers, custodial staff, no one would go home. Everyone recognized that they were contributing to this overall response. I think about 2013 every time I go for a run and put on running shoes. Sometimes I, I reflect on just how tragic the entire thing is. Other times I'm just very thankful for the ability to run, that just being able to lace up and, and get on the treadmill or, or go outside and put down some miles becomes a moment of thankfulness for me. To me, the entire decade is really just a story of resilience. It's a story of resilience of the city, the resilience of the survivors and the injured. I can think of a handful of patients from the bombing who, on the surface, seem to me to have nearly insurmountable struggles in front of them. And when I would talk to them about how they were going to conquer stairs in their home as a new amputee or how they were gonna drive. It was always, yeah, I'm gonna figure that out. This isn't six months later. This is me talking to them in their hospital bed. They're not even ready to go home yet. And they've already predetermined that they're going to succeed. That is incredible. Everyone has something left to give when they think there's nothing left in the tank. And the Boston Marathon finish line is a place where you can witness that every April. Dr. David King is a trauma surgeon at Mass General Hospital and a combat surgeon in the Army Reserve. He'll run the Boston Marathon Monday for the 14th time. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, marathon bombing survivors and married couple Patrick Downs and Jessica Kensky. They each lost a leg in the attack. She later had to have her other leg amputated. Now he works as a psychologist and she's a nurse. We'll hear how their jobs have helped their recovery and how their experiences as bombing survivors help them connect with their patients. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, 
about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof. Streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Hard to believe 82 degrees now in the Boston area, falling as far as the mid-60s overnight tonight with clear skies. Tomorrow, sunshine, some clouds around, temperatures reaching the mid-70s. Then for Saturday, clouds move in, temperatures only in the mid-50s. Sunday, chance of showers right about the low 50s. This is WBUR. It's 459. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This afternoon, FBI agents arrested a 21-year-old member of the Air National Guard in a major breaking investigation into the leak of secret U.S. intelligence documents. Federal agents surrounded a home in Dighton, south of Boston, and apprehended the man. Today is Thursday, April 13th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Our story on the arrest coming up. Also, representatives of jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny are sounding the alarm about his health. They fear he's been poisoned again. California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who has missed time in the Capitol for medical reasons, has asked to temporarily step down from her role on the Judiciary Committee. Some of her Democratic colleagues want her to step down permanently. I don't know any other job in America where you can't show up for months and there are no consequences. Also, the Maine Mineral and Gem Museum is offering $25,000 reward to the first person to recover a fragment of a meteorite that landed on Earth. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Justice Department says it's arrested the man accused of leaking classified U.S. intelligence documents. NPR's Deepa Chevron reports the documents were first posted on social media websites last week. Attorney General Merrick Garland briefed reporters in Washington about the arrest. Teixeira is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. FBI agents took Teixeira into custody earlier this afternoon without incident. Teixeira is accused of leaking classified U.S. intelligence documents that appeared on social media platforms like Twitter and Telegram. The documents, which were reviewed by NPR, contain information about the war in Ukraine. The Department of Justice launched an investigation into the matter, which Garland said is ongoing. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. 21-year-old Jack DeShera is still to be arraigned. Broward County and the city of Fort Lauderdale have both declared states of emergency after record rainfall this week. WLRN's Gerard Albert has more. Fort Lauderdale saw a record-setting 26 inches of rain. Fort Lauderdale Mayor Dean Trantalis says there have been over 900 calls to police and fire rescue. This storm has highlighted the importance of continuing our municipal efforts to address climate resiliency. A video from the city's fire department shows a firefighter in waist-deep water carrying children out of a home. I will say this, I've driven around the city and there's not one area of the city that has not been impacted. Fort Lauderdale International Airport announced that they would reopen flight activity Friday. 
For NPR News, I'm Gerard Albert III in Fort Lauderdale. Former President Donald Trump is in New York today where he spent hours testifying under oath before lawyers from the office of New York Attorney General Letitia James. James accusing the former president and three of his adult children with a decades-long scheme to falsely inflate real estate values. The state is seeking $250 million in ill-gotten gains. A trial is scheduled for the fall. President Biden gave a speech to the Irish Parliament today in which he emphasized the two countries' shared history and values. NPR's Frank Langford reports from Dublin. Biden praised Ireland for providing Ukraine nearly $190 million in non-lethal aid and taking in about 80,000 Ukrainian refugees. Biden said the U.S. and Ireland believed in standing up to tyranny and maintaining faith in a brighter future. We believe anything is possible if we set our mind to it and we do it together. This is the United States of America and Ireland. There's nothing beyond our capacity if we do it together. And we got to believe that. we got to know that because that's the history of both our countries. This visit has been an emotional one for Biden, who's expressed pride in his Irish roots in nearly every speech here. I'm at home, he told Irish lawmakers. I only wish I could stay longer. Frank Langford, NPR News, Dublin. Stocks closed sharply higher on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 383 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We have more now on the arrest of a Massachusetts man in connection with the stolen military documents. Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira is scheduled to make his first court appearance tomorrow. Heavily armed tactical agents arrested the 21-year-old outside a home on a quiet street in North Dighton this afternoon. He emerged from the home in shorts and a T-shirt. He was assigned to the 102nd Intelligence Wing of the Guard. Pentagon spokesman Patrick Ryder says the type of unit the suspect worked in is part of the military's larger intelligence establishment. Intelligence wings throughout the Air Force uh, support as what you might imagine, Air Force intelligence requirements worldwide uh, to support a variety of, of types of intelligence missions and requirements. The classified documents posted online reveal government secrets, including about the war in Ukraine. There is good news on the COVID front. Levels of the coronavirus found in Boston area wastewater have dipped to the lowest in a year. And as WBR's Gabrielle Emanuel reports, a new study finds the virus has become less severe in Massachusetts. The new study looked at patients in the Mass General Brigham Hospital system. The researchers found that COVID became less likely to cause death or hospitalization based on patient records from July 2021 to the end of last year. Harvard's Hussein Estiri led the study. The virus is truly or intrinsically less severe at the moment. Estiri and his team took into account differences in demographics, vaccination status, and prior infection, among other things, and still found the virus has become less dangerous. But Estiri says this could change as the virus continues to mutate. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. The Bay State is getting more than $550 million from the federal government for mass transportation. Most of the money will be distributed throughout Greater Boston to maintain and operate trains, buses and ferries. The funding is part of President Biden's infrastructure law. In the forecast, clear skies tonight, overnight lows just down to 64 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny and warm, highs about 74. Clouds this weekend, comparatively chilly with temperatures in the mid-50s. 82 degrees now in the Boston area at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Juana Summers. Coming up, need an extra $25,000? Well, if you live in Maine, start looking around your backyard for pieces of a meteorite that streaked through the sky last week. A museum there will pay you for them. But now to a major break today in the investigation into the leak of secret U.S. intelligence documents. This afternoon, FBI agents arrested a 21-year-old suspect who is a member of the Air National Guard. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas is covering this, and he joins us now. Hey, Ryan. Hey there. All right, so this has been a fast-moving story since it broke last week. Now a suspect is in custody. What can you tell us? Well, the suspect has been identified as Jack Tashira. He's a 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland gave a brief statement today to reporters confirming the arrest. FBI agents took Tashira into custody earlier this afternoon without incident. Now, TV footage of the arrest shows Tashira dressed in an olive green T-shirt, red athletic shorts being taken into custody in his driveway by what looks like a, a heavily armed SWAT team. Now, Garland said this is an investigation into the unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. He said it's very much an active investigation. Uh, the FBI, meanwhile, says it is still searching uh, Tashira's home in North Dighton, Massachusetts. All right, but what else can you tell us about Tashira at this point? Uh, well, officials tell our colleague Tom Bowman that Shearer worked at the 102nd Military Intelligence Wing uh, based at Otis Air Force Base on Cape Cod. Now, that unit's job is to provide worldwide intelligence for combat support and homeland security. What's still unclear, though, is how Tashira got his hands on the materials that were leaked. We don't know exactly what Tashira's job was on the base, mm-hmm. uh, but people familiar with this sort of military intelligence say it's a little unusual that someone with Tashira's rank would have access to the sort of materials that we've seen in this leak. Uh, and that, of course, raises questions of how he allegedly got his hands on it. That's a question without a clear answer yet, at least publicly. And, and just remind us, what was in these documents? Well, remember, these are dozens of pages of intelligence materials that were posted online on a gamer site. They eventually made their way to other social media, and then the New York Times broke this story last week. NPR has reviewed some of these leaked documents. A lot look like briefing slides with maps and charts, uh, the sort of thing that are uh, cobbled together for senior Pentagon officials. Most of the materials are related to the war in Ukraine, things Mm -hmm. like Ukrainian and Russian troubles with troops and supplies. Uh, There were details on Ukraine's uh, dwindling supplies of air defense missiles. Uh, But these documents don't just deal with Ukraine. There are other parts of the world as well. Uh, And in some instances, what appear to be examples of the U.S. uh, spying on its allies. Oh, wow. All right. But um, big picture, like how bad is this leak from a, a national security perspective? It's not clear yet, uh, and that's because the full scale of this intelligence brief uh, breach really still isn't clear. Obviously, the intelligence community uh, and the military never like to see their secrets spilled in public. So from their perspective, it's bad that this stuff is out there. Uh, President Biden, for one, he's downplaying so far the import of this leak. He says he's concerned, of course, but he says, in essence, that there's nothing in here that's really all that consequential. Uh, Talking to sources of mine, I've heard similar things. Uh, They say that certainly this isn't good for national security. There's no doubt about that. But the biggest issue really may be uh, the diplomatic discomfort, Mm. the embarrassment that comes uh, from public, public revelations about the U.S. spying on its allies. But, you know, as, as one source said, everybody does it, but nobody likes to be seen with their hand in the cookie jar. Uh, big picture, though, from what's known at this point about this leak, uh, this leak doesn't appear to rival the big cases that we've seen of leak se- secrets in the past, most notably those of, let's say, Edward Snowden mm-hmm. uh, or WikiLeaks. NPR's Ryan Lucas, thanks so much. Thank you.
We are also following today's news on one of the most powerful committees on Capitol Hill. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California has asked her colleagues to temporarily replace her on the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's due to health complications. She hasn't cast a vote since mid-February, and she's had a tough time recovering from shingles since last month. But some of Feinstein's Democratic colleagues in Congress want her to step down for good immediately. One of the most vocal people on that front is Congressman Ro Khanna, also of California. In a tweet, he called for Feinstein's resignation as a matter of putting, quote, country ahead of personal loyalty. Congressman Ro Khanna joins me now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Congressman, Senator Feinstein has already said that she plans to retire when her term ends in 2024. And I know, like many of your colleagues, you appreciate her and you celebrate her many years of public service. So, Tell us, why is it so important to you that she step aside now? Well, she has been a trailblazer and icon to many women, but that's precisely why I hope she will make the decision to resign. Right now, Senator Durbin has said that our judges are not going through. She's been missing on the committee. She's been missing votes. Now, after I called on her to resign and a colleague of mine echoed that, uh, she did make this statement uh, that she would remove herself from the Judiciary Committee. That is a constructive step. The problem is, as you know, that requires 60 votes in the Senate. And it's unclear to us, to me, whether the Republicans would even go for that. Hmm. When you called on Senator Feinstein to resign, you did it very publicly. As we noted, you did it in a tweet. I am curious, have you spoken with your colleague privately to encourage her to do so? And did you speak to her before you tweeted that? Well, I have not spoken to Senator Feinstein for four years. She doesn't show up to any of the California lunches. She doesn't engage. I mean, it's sort of an open secret in in Washington. I would have loved to have spoken to her, but that's partly the challenge. And I think uh, all I said is what people know privately, that California has basically had an absentee senator. I want to push you on that. I assume you could have reached out to her office or picked up the phone and called her. Did you do that? We did not, but I don't think uh, that is... uh, necessary given that we've reached out before and haven't been able to get meetings. And the other point is that my obligation is to the people of California and to speak out for what the individuals in California want. And I don't know any other job in America where you can't show up for months. You you don't tell people when you're going to show up. You've been sort of absent for a, a year or two and there are no consequences. I want to go back to the matter of the Judiciary Committee. As you pointed out, hours after you called on Senator Feinstein to resign, she did announce that she will temporarily give up her seat on Judiciary. You and I follow the matters of Washington very closely. Many people listening to our conversation likely do not. So I'm hoping you can just explain the importance of this committee and why the continued absence of one senator has the power to make such a big difference. Well, Senator Durbin, Dick Durbin from Illinois, who chairs the Judiciary Committee, said publicly that one of the reasons that the president judges aren't getting confirmed is Senator Feinstein's absence. The Senate is so closely divided that if we don't have a Democrat on that committee, the judicial nominations can't clear that committee and can't get a vote for confirmation on the Senate. When you have extremist judges in Texas taking away women's rights, taking away the right to have FDA-approved medicine, then we have a crisis in this country, and we need to get as many judges who actually believe in reproductive rights, who believe in equality, who believe in the Constitution, confirmed. And that's slowing the matter down, and that's why I was, I'm hopeful that Senator Feinstein herself will see that and make the decision to resign. 
I want to ask you about something another Californian has said. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, still serving in Congress, has suggested to reporters yesterday that sexism could be at play here. She said, and I'm paraphrasing, that a male senator who was ill would not be treated in the same manner. She also went on to suggest that there may be political agendas at work. How do you respond to that? Well, she made those comments before my tweet, but I have tremendous respect for Speaker Pelosi. And I guess I would just say that whether it's a man or a woman, if someone is unable to fulfill their duties, uh, then they should step aside. I want to ask you for a moment about Senator Feinstein's legacy, which you've alluded to several times in this conversation. I mean, she is, as you note, the longest serving woman in this body. Given that long career, given that history, do you believe that she has owed some grace from her colleagues to be able to make this decision to depart the Senate on her own terms? I believe she's owed respect. I believe her legacy should be celebrated. But ultimately, what I care most about is not any one individual. I care about the American people, and I care about the state of California. And I don't think that someone, no matter how remarkable their achievements, can be absent in their role, especially in this moment where we need an active senator to get the president's judges confirmed, when we need a senator from California pushing back against the transphobia, the gay phobia that we've been hearing. And that's why I, I hope that we will have someone in that role. Democratic Congressman Rokana, thank you so much. Thank you. And we reached out to Senator Feinstein's office. They tell NPR that outside of her illness this year, the senator has not missed any significant amount of time from work previously. If you're listening from the northeastern U.S. and you're looking for an excuse to get outside, here's an activity that might even make you some money. The Maine Mineral and Gem Museum is offering a $25,000 reward for a hunk of the space rock that came hurtling to Earth over the weekend. The meteorite triggered a sonic boom and caused a fireball so bright it was visible in broad daylight from parts of Canada and Maine. Now, if you're wondering where to look, NASA has mapped out a trail based on radar data. Here's Daryl Pitt, who heads the meteorite division at the museum. The meteorites can be found in what's a really well-defined and constrained ellipse. That's about a mile, a mile and a half wide that extends from Waite, Maine, to Canoose, New Brunswick. Now, Pitt says obtaining a meteorite that actually landed in Maine would be a great addition to the museum's roughly 2,000 space rocks. So how do you tell a space rock from a regular old rock? They typically are black. They have a smooth exterior surface. It's toasted as a result of frictional heating with the atmosphere. It might have a slightly stipled surface typically attracted to magnets. And you gotta act fast. The $25,000 reward will go to the first person to bring in a fragment weighing at least one kilogram. That's about 2.2 pounds, though the museum will buy some smaller chunks too. Just remember to ask permission before you look on private property. Happy meteorite hunting. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes, new reporting from ProPublica raises more questions about the financial entanglements of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And the ICA with Simone Lee, a history-making exhibition, makes its U.S. debut. Now on view, icaboston.org. Stocks gained ground today. The Dow rose more than 1%. S&P had its highest close since February. It was up one and a third percent and the Nasdaq rose about 2%. Two more Massachusetts communities will ban the sale of miniature bottles containing less than 100 milliliters of alcohol. Oak Bluffs and Edgartown, uh, Edgartown on Martha's Vineyard passed local ordinances this week that will go into effect next year. Nantucket has a similar ban and Boston is considering one. Details of this day in business coming up on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30. It's 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. A 21-year-old Air National Guardsman was arrested in Dighton today in the leak of secret U.S. intelligence documents. We'll have the latest on that story coming up at the bottom of the hour. Check out a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. Violation explores America's opaque parole system through decades a decades-old murder case. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. This is 90.9 WBUR, 82 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. And I'm Juana Summers. A leading Russian opposition figure is sick and may be suffering from another poisoning. That's the word from those representing Alexei Navalny. They say his life is in grave danger, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Just a month ago, Alexei Navalny supporters were on stage at the Oscars, receiving the top award for a documentary about his poisoning and imprisonment. Now they're sounding the alarm about his health once again. Anna Veduta works with the anti-corruption organization that Navalny founded. He has lost 18 pounds in the last 15 days sitting in this cage, and uh, the prison food causes acute uh, stomach pain. An ambulance was sent to the prison last Friday, she says, but Navalny is not getting the treatment he needs. She says he's being held in a small punishment cell, and he's not being told what medicine he's been given. So we have, and by we I mean um, his lawyers and our team, have all the reasons to be concerned and to suspect that he has been treated with a small portions of some kind of poison to make his health deteriorate even further. 
The Kremlin has brushed off the report, saying these are questions for the prison authorities. The State Department has called for Navalny's release and says it has told Russian government officials that they are responsible to what happens to Navalny in their custody. Russian security services, meanwhile, are trying to tie Navalny and his network to a bombing attack in St. Petersburg that killed a prominent nationalist blogger this month. Navalny's allies say those allegations are aimed at adding more years to his current prison sentence. Veduta believes that Navalny will remain behind bars as long as Russian President Vladimir Putin is in power. Well, we have no illusions at this point that Navalny's term is, uh, well, is a life term, and it's uh, either his life or Putin's life. So we understand that. And from the legal perspective, he, he did nothing wrong. She's trying to keep a spotlight on this case to build up more international pressure on Russia. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Uh, before we get onto the show, wanna uh, there's something I need to tell you. Okay. <clears throat> I'm in a place where I'm trying to honor my needs and act in alignment with what feels right within the scope of my life. And I'm afraid our friendship doesn't seem to fit into that framework. I'm sorry, what? I can no longer hold the emotional space you've wanted me to and think the support you need is beyond the scope of what I can offer. Wait a minute. Andrew, are you trying to break up our friendship on the radio? <laughs> oh, okay. No, but apparently that's a real text one woman got from a now former friend, I guess. Well, that's awkward. Yeah, uh, this kind of clinical-sounding so-called therapy-speak language is all over the place in the U.S. these days, you know, including personal relationships. Rebecca Fishbein wrote an article titled, Is Therapy Speak Making Us Selfish for Bustle? And uh, she's with us now. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I think increasingly we can identify therapy speak, like when people like just want to name a toxic thing or holding space to do like emotional labor. But can we like define some terms here? What is therapy speak? Sure. Uh, so therapy speak is prescriptive language describing certain psychological concepts and behaviors. Uh, it's generally formal. It might be language you pick up from a mental health professional. It might be language you pick up from, you know, social media or just talking to your friends. I actually saw someone online refer to it as the HRification of language. And huh. I, I really like that because it's sort of scripted in a way that removes culpability. Yeah, you'd mentioned that this type of language shows up on social media a lot. There's this dude that pops up on my TikTok all the time. His name is uh, Therapy Jeff, and you and you mentioned him in your piece. You're feeling everything all the time, but also have no capacity left to feel anything anymore. This overwhelming mix of emotions simultaneously floods your senses and leaves you numb. And still, you're expected to conquer the day. Like so how do these types of uh, videos like increase the proliferation of therapy speak? I think in the last decade or so, we've really been talking a lot about mental health care and you know learning ways to prioritize our needs because a lot of people were prioritizing other people's needs and neglecting their own. Mm -hmm. So you know these videos are very popular because people are learning about themselves for the first time, but they are meant to be blueprints. They're not meant to be an actual script for how you communicate with your friends. It's just a way of getting people to think more deeply about their interactions and relationships. Mm. Yeah, you talk to people who are on the receiving end of therapy speak from friends and other people in their lives. Uh, can you tell us an example that stood out to you? 
Sure. So uh the example that you read in the intro, um, I spoke with a young woman named Anna who received a text message from a friend that she'd been in a five-year friendship with. And Anna was really hurt by this and really frustrated. And, you know, she tried to ask her friend, like, what she'd done. And, you know, her friend said that she wasn't comfortable answering. And Anna felt like this friend was ending the friendship with an HR memo and, you know, had hoped that after five years, this friend would respect her enough to give her something more straightforward or at least be a bit more kind. Yeah. Is that what the experts you talked to said? Like, that's how you should just confront conflict head on like that? Um, so the experts that I spoke with talked a lot about how every situation is different. And so honesty and having compassion can be really helpful in a difficult situation. Um, I spoke with uh, this one expert, Marissa G. Franco. She wrote this book, Platonic, that's really great if you're interested in learning more about friendships. And she spoke about the concept of mutuality. And mutuality is thinking about your needs and someone else's needs and deciding which are more important to prioritize in the moment, which sounds really obvious, but you know it's, it's mm -hmm. actually a good way to sort of think about how you're dealing with a friendship. So an example she gave is let's say that your boundary is you don't text after 10 p.m., mm -hmm. but your friend is having a crisis late at night and she needs to talk to you. At that moment, your friend's needs are perhaps greater than yours, and so you can break your boundary and talk to your friend. On the other hand, if your friend wants to text you about love is blind at 11, your need to be off screens and get some sleep is more important than the need to talk about the TV show. Mm -hmm. It's just like that pendulum swinging back and forth until we find the right place. Yeah, and it's it's going to be an ongoing discussion, hopefully for a long time, because we're learning more about each other. We have more access to more voices because of social media. So it's giving us an opportunity to think like beyond ourselves and beyond our immediate friendships too. Did you talk to anyone who has used therapy speak with their friends? So I interviewed a lot of people for this story. And some of the people that I interviewed said, you know, I've also done this. And it's it's not even intentional. It's just when you've been saturated in some of these phrases, either you're in therapy or you watch a lot of therapy TikTok, it can come out in your conversations with your friends. I've said holding space to my friends um, mm -hmm. without even fully understanding what that means. But it's not that people are intentionally being cruel to their friends or trying to sound like a therapist. It's just, it's trending. It's in the lexicon. That was culture writer Rebecca Fishbein, who wrote about the proliferation of Therapy Speak for Bustle magazine. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, or the Red Sox are likely happy to return to friendly Fenway after they lost four straight games to the Tampa Bay Rays for this afternoon's final game. It was the Rays over the Sox 9-3. to Tomorrow, the Sox greet the Angels for a four-game set that include... That includes Monday's late morning game at Fenway during the marathon. This is 90.9 WBUR, midsummer weather in mid-spring, sunny and dry for the remainder of the evening, giving way to a beautiful evening and clear night tonight. Tonight's lows should be in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, sunny, a few clouds around, temperatures in the mid-70s. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Our Planet Live in Concert. The Netflix series is now a live concert event coming to Emerson Colonial Theatre on April 23rd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheatre.com. And New England Innovation Academy, featured in the Boston Globe and Fast Company, 
Limited space for grades 6 to 12 for fall 2023. NEIacademy.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, marking 10 years. There's been two large explosions at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. You can hear the ambulances, you can hear the helicopter. People are responding with everything they can, but it's just not clear if it's going to be enough right now. We reflect on service and hope. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration says it's expanding access to government-funded health insurance for DACA recipients, people who were brought to the U.S. illegally as children. In a video posted on Twitter, President Biden said so-called DREAMers can now apply for Medicaid and health care exchanges through the Affordable Care Act. Health care should be a right, not a privilege. My administration has worked hard to expand health care. And today, more Americans have health insurance than ever. Today's announcement is about giving DACA recipients the same opportunity. And we'll continue to do what we can to protect DREAMers and push Congress to give them and their families a pathway to citizenship. The move is expected to draw criticism from Republican-led states, which have been reluctant to expand Medicaid for people living in the U.S. illegally. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed gun control bills today. Michigan Public Radio's Rick Pluta reports the legislation would require universal background checks for gun purchases and enact new gun storage requirements. The bill signing took place at Michigan State University, where a deadly mass shooting occurred in February. Whitmer said mass shooting events like Oxford High School in 2021 get a lot of attention, but gun violence is common. Across the nation, too many criminals have an easy time getting their hands on guns and perpetuating cycles of violence, endangering families and law enforcement. Too many children's lives are cut short. Whitmer said suicides and gun accidents will also be prevented by requiring guns to be locked up when not in use. The Michigan legislature is also about to present Whitmer with bills to allow judges to issue emergency gun seizure orders if it's determined a person poses a threat. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta in East Lansing, Michigan. Stocks traded higher today on Wall Street. The Dow was up 383 points at the close. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard is under arrest, suspected of leaking classified U.S. intelligence documents. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira is set to be arraigned tomorrow in federal court in Boston. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports Teixeira was arrested today at a home in Bristol County. The FBI and heavily armed tactical agents descended on a quiet street in North Dighton early this afternoon to arrest Teixeira. The 21-year-old wearing a t-shirt and shorts was taken into custody outside a home. United States Attorney General Merrick Garland says Teixeira is wanted in connection with an investigation into unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Teixeira is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. FBI agents took Teixeira into custody earlier this afternoon without incident. The classified documents posted online revealed government secrets about the war in Ukraine. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Some Massachusetts health providers say they don't expect to change the way they prescribe the medicated abortion pill mifepristone. A federal appeals court ruled the drug can stay on the market but with restrictions. The providers say an executive order issued by Governor Maura Healey this week protects Massachusetts providers from lawsuits that are initiated out of state. 
Runners from all over the world descend on Boston this weekend, and the city's tourism bureau, Meet Boston, expects more international crowds will line up along the race route than during the past two marathons during the pandemic. WBR's Ninjor and Wemeka has more. This year's marathon is expected to be more like a pre-pandemic race with a larger base of international spectators. Meet Boston CEO Martha Sheridan says that's because travel has opened up more and people are more comfortable traveling from overseas this year. We're excited to welcome the world back to Boston this weekend and um, you know can't wait to show them our Boston love. The marathon will bring in some 30,000 athletes from more than 100 countries. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Massachusetts House this afternoon approved its massive tax relief bill. It offers tax relief for parents, caregivers, renters, and seniors. It also cuts the short-term capital gains tax and changes the estate tax. Several legislative hurdles need to be cleared before it becomes law. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. Clear skies tonight, temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, sunshine, a few clouds around, highs in the mid-70s. 80 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton. One woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. From iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. Designed to assist those working from home. More at RemotePC.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. And I'm Juana Summers. There is new information out about the connection between Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his friend, the Republican megadonor Harlan Crow. Last week, the investigative journalism site ProPublica reported that for over two decades, Thomas has received luxury vacations around the world from Crow without disclosing them. Thomas has said he understood those trips were not reportable and said he intended to follow new rules about disclosure going forward. Today, ProPublica is reporting that in 2014, one of Harlan Crow's companies bought property from Clarence Thomas and his family, including the house where his elderly mother was living. This was also never disclosed, which would appear to violate a federal ethics law. Justin Elliott is one of the authors of this reporting. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. So, Justin, what more can you tell us about these properties that Clarence Thomas and his family sold to Harlan Crow? Yeah, so we're talking about three lots in Savannah, Georgia. Um, one is a house where, as you mentioned, uh, Justice Thomas's mother was actually living, and, and it's a house where uh, Justice Thomas spent part of his childhood. And then also, in addition to that, two vacant lots on the same street. And Harlan Crow paid uh, Justice Thomas and some other of his relatives uh, around $133,000 for these properties. And so far, what have Crow and Thomas said about these purchases? Well, Thomas hasn't said anything. Uh, he didn't respond to our, our detailed questions. Crow said that he bought the 
the properties, in particular the house, uh, with plans to someday build a museum to sort of uh, honor Clarence Thomas's life. Uh, he didn't address her questions about why he needed to buy the vacant lots down the road to do that. Um, so there's actually still a lot we don't know about this. We also don't know, for example, whether uh, Justice Thomas's mother, who appears to still live there, is, is paying Harlan Crow rent. Okay. So help us understand some of the law here. What does the federal law in question say about real estate transactions? Yeah, well, the law we're talking about with Justice Thomas here is it's a disclosure law. Um, and, you know, the idea is you're supposed to disclose disclose transactions so uh, people can monitor potential conflicts of interest or, or influence. And, you know, we talked to several ethics lawyers who said uh, you simply have to report most real estate transactions. And, and they said you would have to report this one. Um, but this transaction was was nowhere on Justice Thomas's uh, disclosure filing for that year, 2014. As we mentioned, your first report came out about a week ago, and I'd like to ask you, what's happened in the week since that initial reporting? Has Congress or perhaps the Justice Department or the Supreme Court itself taken any action? Uh, we haven't heard anything from the Supreme Court itself, itself other than a, a statement from Justice Thomas, but the Senate Judiciary Committee announced uh, that they're going to have a hearing on Supreme Court ethics. And uh, we've been hearing from a lot of people with information, including information about, about the sale, which we were able to, to confirm through public records. So we're still reporting on this. Mm. So I'm curious, Justin, given that we're talking about a Supreme Court justice here, how is a law like the one that we've just been talking about enforced or perhaps even prosecuted? You know, that's a great question that, uh, interestingly, no one seems to have a very good answer to. Um, you know, with the rest of the federal government, there's a whole sort of infrastructure of ethics lawyers who who enforce these sorts of rules. You know, people can get fired or fined or occasionally even criminally prosecuted. Um, with, with the Supreme Court, uh, it's incredibly opaque and uh, it's, it's not clear anyone is enforcing these rules or even, frankly, reading these forms when they're filed to see if they're complete. So we don't really know at this point. Okay. That is Justin Elliott from ProPublica with new reporting about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Justin, thank you so much. Thank you. A video game officially licensed by Major League Baseball has a brand new mode featuring players from the Negro National League. And it's a first for the long-running game franchise. NPR's Jamal Michelle reports. My friends know what time it is when I step up to the plate in MLB The Show 23. Now it's the shortstop, Jackie Robinson. Robinson's ability to read a pitch is really what made his batting average so legendary. Swing and a hard hit liner up the middle to base hit. So a man aboard now. With one so when we hop online to play, I never leave him out of my rotation. My cousin, though, he's definitely a Satchel Page stand. The pitch. Leg kicks like satchels can really mess with the hitter's timing, and if you can get past that, well, you still got to hit some of the best stuff any pitcher's ever had. Mainly because of his 105-mile-an-hour b-ball, as Page called it. Not to mention his hella unorthodox windup. MLB The Show spotlights players like Page and Robinson in a new feature called Storylines, the Negro Leagues. The single-player mode reconstructs moments from the lives of legendary black players that couldn't compete in the majors until Jackie Robinson broke that barrier in 1947. And while some Negro League players showed up in past games, the expanded roster and all-new mode came from a partnership with the Negro League's Baseball Museum. Each chapter begins with some historical context presented by museum president Bob Kendrick. So if the Monarchs have their full roster intact, 
Jackie Robinson never gets invited to try out? And how would history have been altered? Kendrick was blown away by the reception storylines got. In fact, he told me it came up during a tour he recently led. As I typically do when I'm telling Satchel's story, he had names for his pitches. Yeah. And so I get to his famous b-ball and I, and I raise the question, do you know why he called it the b-ball? And a young kid, a young white kid, is standing there with his father and he looks at me, he said, because it bees where he wanted to be when he wanted to be there. <laughs> You've been playing the show, and his father said, yes, he has been listening to you, and he has been paying attention. It's not all celebration, of course. Rather than gloss over the ugly side of the game, Kendrick says it's important to remember the circumstances that created the need for the Negro League in the first place. Jim Crow, segregation, a horrible chapter in this country's history. But the story of the Negro Leagues themselves, there's nothing sorrowful or sad about that story. Because that is that story of what you do when you're faced with this kind of adversity. Mm -hmm. You rise above. MLB The Show 23's newest mode is a gift for gamers who've been waiting to see their favorite baseball legends finally get their roses. Bob Kendrick has his own dreams about taking to the field as well. Well, you know, I wanted to be in the middle of action, so I always wanted to be a pitcher. Ooh. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be right there in it, kind of controlling yeah. the game from that perspective. So, yeah, that would be the role. Now, I probably couldn't break a pane of glass, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. K throwing Ks. That's, <laughs> that's what they're going to call you. <laughs> Kendrick may not be lacing up anytime soon, but thanks to MLB The Show 23, he can still relive the glory days of some of baseball's legends he helped bring to life. From the 1956 World Series... Robinson after a foul and a ball... To a video game in 2023... Here's a swing and a drive left field, and he knew it. Jamal Michelle, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The U.S. and foreign governments are in damage control mode following the leak of U.S. intelligence documents. The documents appear to show the U.S. eavesdropping on both adversaries and allies. This could not come at a more sensitive time for South Korea as it gears up for a presidential summit in Washington in less than two weeks. NPR's Anthony Kuhn has the story from Seoul. The documents suggest that the U.S. listened in on conversations going on inside South Korea's presidential office. President Yoon Song-yeol's aides, they showed, were stressing out about U.S. requests to send artillery shells to Ukraine. Kim Jong-dae, a former defense official, now a visiting professor at Yonsei University's Institute for North Korean Studies, explains. The U.S. started asking for shells last September. And in October, NATO's Secretary General directly made the request to South Korea. And South Korea hasn't responded for over six months. But now that they have agreed to this state visit, they can no longer delay the decision. South Korea says its own rules prevent it from selling arms to nations at war, and that any arms sale contract must clearly specify the weapon's end user. 
As a workaround, South Korea has been selling artillery shells to the U.S. and Poland to backfill supplies they send to Ukraine. But the leaked documents suggest, Kim says, that Seoul is concerned about continued U.S. pressure. I interpret this to mean that the clause about end users can actually be changed. Then it becomes highly probable that the shells will go to Ukraine. That would be a big policy shift for South Korea. It worries that if it arms Ukraine, Russia could help North Korea build its nuclear arsenal. Opposition Democratic Party policy chief Kim Min-sok warned on Thursday of such a scenario. President Yoon should clearly declare that South Korea cannot send lethal weapons or combat forces to Ukraine, which could lead to a proxy war between the two Koreas. So far, at least, the U.S.-South Korea alliance, which turned 70 this year, has not come under fire because of the leaks. That's not the case, though, with President Yoon song yeol The opposition party has been trying to paint his foreign policy as, as being largely subservient uh, to the United States. Carl Friedhoff is an expert on South Korean public opinion at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. He notes that the U.S. has not yet confirmed whether the leaked documents are real or fake. Seoul, though, has already dismissed them as forgeries. But Friedhoff says that's not what they look like. When you look at the documents and the, the conversations that are supposed to have taken place, it aligns very well with what analysts and experts understood as the South Korean position, what they had already said publicly. South Koreans know the U.S. spies on its allies, including them. What matters is Seoul's reaction. Kwon Jil-sung, an opposition Democratic Party spokesman, told reporters Wednesday that the government must not hush up the controversy just because of the upcoming summit. Keeping a low profile despite a clear violation of sovereignty doesn't benefit our national interest at all, he said. Rather, it damages the bargaining power of our diplomacy. If President Yoon decides to change South Korea's rules, allowing it to sell arms to Ukraine, Kim Jong-dae predicts it won't be announced until after the summit to avoid the appearance of striking a deal under U.S. pressure. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by PNC Bank, celebrating all who go above and beyond to give kids the best start in life. PNC is committed to early education. More at pncgrowupgreat.com. Coming up on WBUR, our story about how first responders to the Boston Marathon bombing 10 years ago have formed a unique bond. And tomorrow afternoon on All Things Considered, Jessica Kensky and Patrick Downs were newlyweds when they were injured in the marathon attack. Downs lost a leg and Kensky had both legs amputated. Four years after the bombing, she was able to return to work as an oncology nurse. When I put on scrubs again and my badge and, you know, went into work, it was like getting a part of myself back. Until we got to start putting pieces of our life back together, I felt like I was just a Boston Marathon survivor instead of and this and this and this. How work in the healing and helping professions helped the two recover. Our story tomorrow on WBUR's All Things Considered. Have a beautiful evening coming tonight. Clear skies, lows should be in the mid-60s. For tomorrow, sunny, but not quite as warm as today has been. Temperatures in the mid-70s. WBUR supporters include the Harvard Art Museums with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American Art from the Spanish Empire. Free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. 
I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. A decade after two bombs exploded at the Boston Marathon, some medical volunteers stationed at the finish line are speaking publicly about the experience for the first time. Martha Biebinger from member station WBUR brings us the story of what they saw that day and the love that emerged from this act of domestic terrorism. The story may be disturbing for some listeners. April 15, 2013 was a near-perfect race day. Brian Fitzgerald, a volunteer athletic trainer, was stationed just outside a vast white medical tent at the finish line. He remembers feeling relief. It wasn't hot like the previous year when runners suffering from heat stroke packed the tent. Then, at 2.49 p.m., the first bomb exploded about 75 yards from Fitzgerald. He remembers heading into the stream of runners toward the smoke. A second pressure cooker packed with nails and ball bearings exploded further down the course as Fitzgerald reached the first blast site. Once you stepped into that, it was a different world. It just shock. It was like hell. As soon as you walked in, all you could do was smell blood and burning flesh. Yeah, it was horrific. 761 Police officers made call after call for ambulances. One pleaded for aid from the marathon's volunteer doctors and nurses. Help up from the medical tent. Get as many people up here as you can from the medical tent. Inside that tent, nurse Lynn Landry heard the call and headed for the street. And then I saw what everyone else saw on TV, victims coming toward us. I stopped dead and thought, I didn't sign up for this. I don't know if I can do this. Someone pulled Landry back into the tent. A woman with shrapnel wounds needed IV fluids while she waited for an ambulance. And I was shaking like a leaf. I got it in and I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Go from one patient to the next to the next and just put in IVs. 22 minutes after the first bomb, emergency responders had sent 97 people to hospitals. Landry and colleagues kept tending to victims and runners. Got a possible device at 671 Boylston. Possible device. Police detonated at least one suspicious package not far from the tent. Now you can, I could start to feel panic. Chris Troyanos is the marathon's medical coordinator. Because they're coming to me, where do we go? We're safe. I had no idea. We're going to get the victims out. We're then going to conduct a sweep with the OD. Three people died at the scene. A long recovery began for hundreds of others. Thousands of marathon volunteers attended free counseling sessions. Back at work at a local hospital, Landry realized she needed help. Sometimes I would pull back from patients. I thought, how do I know they're not a terrorist? And I thought, oh, this is, this is so wrong. A year later, Troyanos had returned to working the marathon. The theme was Boston Strong. Afterwards, he was ready to quit. I, I just didn't think I wanted to do this anymore. And, and not because of the bombing, because it was just, it was overwhelming. But out of the fear, anger, and despair, something powerful was taking shape, what Troyanos now calls his race medicine family. Every one of these people 
medical or not, I mean, I trust them with my life. I mean, I know that they're going to do what we need, and I never question it. The family is 12 to 15 members who travel with Troyanos voluntarily to a dozen or so races every year. They pack the supply trucks, set up cots, run hoses, and IV lines. Race days start with wake-up calls between 3 and 5 a.m. and the race day playlist. I start dancing on the sidewalk yes. before I get in the car at 5 in the morning. Sarah Menendez is an athletic trainer. She doesn't want to talk about 2013, her first year volunteering at the marathon. That's not a defining moment. We have come together afterwards, and that's what we focus on. With love and humor. At official race family events, for example, everyone wears what's become lucky red underwear. Since this interview is an official event, Landry canvasses the room. So we all have on our reds. Do you have on your red? I sure do. Do you have on your right, Chris? Okay. The group shares nods, smiles, and a look that Emma Nelson, an orthopedic physical therapist, sums up. We have to be there. We have to be there for each other. So it's difficult to put into words exactly what it means, but it means everything at the same time. Because together, this family has learned they can face anything. And they'll be ready on Monday at the marathon finish line. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. Mary Quant sculpted the style of the swinging 60s. The fashion designer who popularized the mini skirt, hot pants, and other emblematic looks of the era has died. She was 93. NPR's Netta Ulabi has our remembrance. You can see how Mary Quant revolutionized British fashion in the early 1960s by looking at newsreels from the era. An audience of nearly 800 next saw some of the collection of Mary Quant and quickly appreciated what the experts mean when they say that she has jolted England out of its conventional attitude to clothes. Black and white footage shows models prancing in mini dresses with pockets, shiny raincoats made from PVC and candy-colored tights with matching flats. Still in her 20s, Mary has a tremendous flair for designing. Quant was fascinated by fashion even as a child during World War II. The daughter of Welsh school teachers, she found conventional children's garments stifling. I didn't like clothes the way they were. I didn't like the clothes that I inherited from a cousin. They weren't me. That's Quant in a 1985 interview on Thames TV. She remembered being struck by the style of another little girl in a dance class. She was very complete head to toe. She was it that has always been in my head. Black tights, white ankle socks, and black patent leather shoes with a button on top. And let's not forget the skirt. The skirt was minutely short. Quant wanted fashion to be affordable and wearable. Clothes, she said, a young woman could play, work, and run for the bus in. It was sold in JCPenney's and modeled by British it girls Twiggy and Jean Shrimpton. They used makeup in a completely different way. They used their face as a canvas, and then they painted on top, often using uh, the things in the absolutely the opposite part of the face they were intended. And this liveness and this, this exciting approach was so intriguing. I wanted to rationalize that into the sort of size thing you could put in a handbag and carry around with you. People who worked for Mary Quant included the first manager of the Rolling Stones, that's how cool she was, and with Vidal Sassoon to create his signature angular bob. 
I think fashion anticipates. It seems to get the first. Mary Quant certainly did. A Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, she insisted that fashion is not frivolous, but part of being alive today. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. More at KeeperSecurity.com. From Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. And from Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. This is 90.9 WBUR, a suddenly summer out there, 80 degrees now, falling only to the mid-60s overnight tonight. You may have to kick off a blanket. Tomorrow, a few clouds move in, but mainly sunny skies. Temperatures should top out in the mid-70s. The weekend is looking a lot cloudier and a lot cooler. Temperatures in the 50s and 60s over the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard was arrested today at a home in a quiet neighborhood in Dighton. Federal agents took the 21-year-old into custody for allegedly leaking classified national defense documents. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, April 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the U.S. Court of Appeals route to temporarily keep in place the FDA's approval of the abortion pill mifepristone, but parts of the medical community still harbor concerns about criminal or civil liability if they prescribe the drug. And a Boston trauma surgeon thinks about the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing a lot when he's out running. Ten years ago, he ran the marathon and then went to work to operate on the bombing victims. Sometimes I reflect on just how tragic the entire thing is. Other times, I'm just very thankful for the ability to run. It's 6.01. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Pentagon has described the leak of highly classified documents on the Ukraine war as a deliberate criminal act. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, it comes as the Justice Department has announced the arrest of a 21-year-old suspect. Brigadier General Pat Ryder, a Pentagon spokesman, said the breach has prompted a review of the way the military is handling secret material. We do have stringent guidelines in place for safeguarding classified and sensitive information. This was a deliberate criminal act. Shortly after Ryder spoke, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the arrest of 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. Despite repeated questions, the Pentagon spokesman declined to say why such a young member of the military would have access to such sensitive documents. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Memphis Representative Justin Pearson was sworn into the Tennessee House this morning, a week after being expelled. Blaze Ganey with member station WPLN reports Pearson says he'll continue fighting for the same cause that got him removed. Pearson stood across the street from the Tennessee Capitol with his family and members of the Democratic Caucus as he took his oath of office. Right after, he gave a speech that highlighted the need for gun reform, the same issue that he raised in the event that led to his expulsion. Unfortunately, the solution offered by the Republican Party in the state of Tennessee was to try and expel us, try and expel our voices, and silence our fight for an end to gun violence. The 28-year-old was expelled along with 27-year-old Representative Justin Jones, both black. Both members have said they want to use the rest of session to focus on passing common-sense gun laws. For NPR News, I'm Blaze Ganey in Nashville. The city of Minneapolis says it's agreeing to pay nearly $9 million to settle lawsuits filed by two people who said that former police officer Derek Chauvin pressed his knee onto their necks years before he did the same thing to George Floyd, which resulted in the black man's death. Stocks rallied today after an encouraging report on wholesale inflation. More from NPR's Scott Horsley. Wholesale prices fell by half a percent between February and March, thanks in part to a drop in energy prices. Over the last 12 months, wholesale prices have risen just 2.7 percent. That's the smallest annual increase in more than two years. Signs of cooling inflation helped to rally the stock market. The S&P 500 index rose one and a third percent, while the Nasdaq jumped nearly two percent. The news from the job market is somewhat less encouraging. The number of people applying for unemployment benefits increased last week. That suggests that layoffs are on the rise, even though the job market is still tight and the unemployment rate remains close to a half-century low. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow was up 383 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. We have more now on NPR's story about the arrest of a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman suspected of leaking classified U.S. intelligence documents. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira was arrested today at his home on, in Dighton. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning went there and filed this report. Police in Dighton have blocked off about a mile of Maple Street surrounding Jack Teixeira's family home. That means residents in the area have been forced to wait around for hours, waiting to find out when they'd be let through. John Grundine is worried about his dog, Whitey, who has been locked up in the house since the morning. I just would like to get home and let my dog out. Dighton is a mostly rural town of fewer than 8,000 people on the south coast. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Germani. 
Local advocates are applauding a plan announced by the Biden administration today to expand access to Affordable Care Act and Medicaid coverage for immigrants who came to the U.S. illegally as children. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, allows young people to live and work in the country without facing deportation. Estefani Pineda is a DACA recipient and coordinator for the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. She welcomes Biden's decision. I think that any time something positive is done as a DACA recipient for the DACA community, um, it makes me really excited. And this seems to be something really positive for DACA recipients. And it just seems to add another layer of protection for all of us. The White House hopes to implement the change by the end of the month. People who plan to fly out of Logan Airport are being urged to check the status of their flight if they're going to Florida. Massport CEO Lisa Whelan says it's not clear when the Fort Lauderdale Airport will resume normal operations after heavy rain forced it to close yesterday. She also cautions the problems could affect other Florida airports. Whelan says a flight to Fort Lauderdale from Worcester had to turn back to Massachusetts last night because of the situation in Florida. In the forecast, pretty dry, pretty warm out there overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-60s and then for tomorrow, lots of sunshine, some clouds around. Temperatures topping out in the mid-70s. 79 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. And I'm Juana Summers. The Biden administration is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to block a federal appeals court decision that significantly curbs access to a common abortion pill. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit made a ruling that preserves the Food and Drug Administration's approval of mifepristone for now, but with new limitations. NPR's Sarah McCammon has been following the story and joins us now. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Juana. So, Sarah, if people can still get this abortion pill, why is the Biden administration appealing to the Supreme Court? Well, because this Fifth Circuit decision makes the pill a lot harder to get. You know, the Obama and Biden administrations had rolled back certain restrictions on mifepristone. They stopped requiring patients to make multiple in-person visits to get the pills. They allowed the pills to be prescribed up to 10 weeks instead of just seven weeks of pregnancy, and they could be sent by mail. Now, this ruling undoes all of that. So even though it's still on the market, abortion rights opponents are calling this a victory. Here's lawyer Aaron Hawley with Alliance Defending Freedom, which is representing the groups that filed the original lawsuit challenging Mifepristone's FDA approval. So this puts us back in a position we would have been prior to those major changes in 2016. It would require three in-person visits. It would move the gestation limit back from 10 weeks uh, to seven weeks. And Sarah, what will this mean for abortion providers? I mean, that's still being sorted out, but it depends somewhat on where they're located, how they provide care, whether they're in person or not. Monica Cepak is with WISP, which offers reproductive health care over telehealth. She says they're switching to another abortion pill option because they believe it's still safe to send it in the mail. No, we will not be shipping mifepristone. We will only be shipping um, misoprostol starting Saturday. However, this will take us one to two weeks to fully implement and one, another provider, Carafem, told me they're also thinking through whether they can provide mifepristone in some states but not others because there's also a conflicting federal court ruling in play here that may allow access for people in some states. 
Remind us, if you can, about that case and how it factors into this latest ruling. Well, as you may recall, 18 Democratic attorneys general sued to try to protect access to mifepristone. A federal judge in Washington state responded by ordering the FDA not to disrupt access. And Judge Thomas O'Rice actually just responded this evening to a request from the Department of Justice asking to clarify because these cases are in direct conflict. Judge Rice issued an order affirming that in the states that are involved in this lawsuit, access to mifepristone should remain unchanged. And on that note, I spoke earlier with Dr. Colleen McNicholas at Planned Parenthood in Illinois. She thinks between the case in Washington and a favorable political climate in Illinois, Planned Parenthood can keep doing what they've been doing, which is prescribing mifepristone up to 11 weeks, using telehealth, and mailing the pills within Illinois only, at least right now. Okay, and what about states that are not part of that lawsuit? Right, there are several states like California and New York that aren't part of the lawsuit, but where abortion is legal. Dr. Kristen Brandy is an OBGYN in one of those states, New Jersey. She told me she's not sure what she's going to do about prescribing mifepristone. She says this ruling could be burdensome for her patients because it requires those multiple doctor visits. If we have to have people come in three times in person, that's definitely more than most providers are requiring patients to come in for because that's just not necessary. It's something that we were doing over telehealth, which also sounds like we can't provide anymore. I mean, Sarah, you have been covering this issue extensively, so I'd like to ask you, was there anything else in this ruling that either surprised you or you think it's important for us to know? Well, the court seemed interested in the plaintiff's arguments about what are known as Comstock laws. These are 19th century anti-obscenity laws that prohibit mailing abortion-related items and other materials. The Biden administration says they don't apply to abortion pills, but anti-abortion groups say they do. The Fifth Circuit seemed open to the idea that they might. This is just Mm. an issue to watch because it could be significant in future cases related to reproductive health care. NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. As President Biden gears up for his re-election bid, there's a central theme he keeps repeating. Invest in America. It's a vision of how Biden wants the government to help reshape the economy. It's something experts call industrial policy. NPR's White House correspondent Osma Khalid has more. It's a busy morning at Marlin's Deal in Baltimore. This laser is using light to cut steel. Drew Greenblatt owns this manufacturing plant where workers cut, bend, and weld steel into specialty wire baskets. They'll end up everywhere, from labs to factories. In 2020, when COVID hit and supply chains got snarled, his business got a boost. And we started making IV poles. We also started making things like the sanitizer stands where you put your hand underneath the little soap dispenser. That stopped coming in from overseas. Test tube racks stopped coming in from overseas. The pandemic sent a message. American companies should not be putting their eggs in the Chinese basket. It's just too dangerous. But Greenblatt was already on this mission. He has half a dozen American flags around his factory floor. He's pleased Biden is, in his words, following Donald Trump's vision to make more things in America. But right now it's wildly unfair to build in America compared to China because we have so many things stacked against us. Greenblatt wants Biden to go further. He wants less regulation and a tax break for R&D. In the end, he says supporting American manufacturing is smart policy and smart politics. Whoever can get more factories growing faster in America is going to win a lot of votes. Biden is touting his economic agenda a lot lately, on the road touring factories like this semiconductor facility in Durham last month. 
Experts say if you look at the whole package of economic policies this White House has rolled out, it's rather unprecedented in recent times. Biden's team is systematically crafting industrial policy to try to shape markets and the private sector. Brian Deese was a top economic advisor to Biden and helped lead this push. We are, for the first time since really the 1960s and in in many cases earlier than that, using targeted public investment over multiple years to try to crowd in private capital. They're doing this in a few ways. They're giving out subsidies for semiconductor plants and electric vehicles. They're also keeping Chinese products out by maintaining the Trump-era tariffs and imposing sweeping export controls to limit China's access to technology. And they're doing this all out in the open, which is even more unusual, according to Danny Roderick. He's an economist at Harvard. Among economists and mainstream policymakers, I think industrial policy for a number of decades now has been a kind of a dirty word. And I think that sort of has completely changed now. It's changed because politics on the right and the left have changed. And politicians have decided China is a common foe. Roderick says the environment now is sort of akin to the fears the U.S. had of the Soviet Union in the 1950s. That sparked government programs that eventually led to technological inventions like GPS and the Internet. But there's also a huge difference that that the United States was never as economically integrated with the Soviet Union as it is now with China. The U.S. and China depend on each other so much for trade. But the Biden team says China doesn't play fair. Here's Brian Deese again. A purely laissez-faire, trickle-down view that ignores the role of China in the global economy, I think, is, is, doesn't work. The White House says the Chinese government provides enormous subsidies and steals technology. So the U.S. has to intervene to help American companies and American workers. It's clear when I spoke to the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, that this mission is also about national security. We buy 92 percent of advanced semiconductors from Taiwan, utterly vulnerable position for the United States to be in. She says there are certain industries, like chips, that are just too important to be largely outsourced. And so the government is offering funding to companies to build factories in America. During the 80s and 90s, when so many manufacturing plants shut down, she says there were devastating economic consequences. She knows firsthand. My dad, he and all of his friends were put out of work when all of the jobs at his watch factory went to China. But for decades, many politicians on both sides of the aisle proudly supported free trade, even as America's manufacturing power declined. We were just, I guess, a little bit slow to wake up for it. COVID was the great eye-opener. Nobody was talking about supply chains four years ago. The pandemic accelerated the conversation. But Donald Trump's election, and specifically his appeal to blue-collar workers, also sparked some soul-searching. There's been a transformation on the part of everybody. Scott Paul is president of a lobby group called the Alliance for American Manufacturing. You could cut and paste some of Trump's trade policies, and they're now the Democratic platform. In the year 2000, Biden, like many Republicans and Democrats, voted to normalize trade relations with China. But some 20 years later, the political debate has shifted. Christine McDaniel with George Mason University is one of the rare voices in Washington openly skeptical of this shift. Industrial policy means that through government, taxes, subsidies, incentives, rules, regulations, you are taking resources from one part of the economy and reallocating them to another part, okay? 
government is uh, notorious. Unfortunately, they just don't have a very good track record for uh, picking winners and losers. But supporters of industrial policy say the U.S. has always helped out companies in one way or another. And so the debate ought to be about how to do this most effectively. And Biden's supporters bristle at the idea that the president is copying his predecessor. Even if the mission is the same, they say Biden has better plans and is following through. Back at the wire factory in Baltimore, Drew Greenblatt says it doesn't matter what Republicans or Democrats are saying in Washington. I don't care about messaging. I only care about policies that impact my factory So whether or not people are saying, make things in America. That's all, it's all word salad. But he insists supporting American manufacturing is a winning political proposition. And as he told me, whoever can get more factories up and running in America is going to win a lot of votes. Asma Khalid, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks gain ground today. The Dow rose more than 1 percent. S&P had its highest close since February. It was up one and a third percent. The Nasdaq rose about 2 percent. Two more Massachusetts communities will ban the sale of miniature bottles containing less than 100 milliliters of alcohol. Oak Bluffs and Edgartown on Martha's Vineyard passed local ordinances this week. It will go into effect next year. Nantucket has a similar ban, and Boston is considering one. It's 618. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. This afternoon, the Red Sox gave it a good go, but in the end, they lost to Tampa Bay big time, 9-3. to That means the Sox lost every game of the four-game series. It gives the Rays a tie for the best-ever start to a regular season. Red Sox are back at home at Fenway tomorrow to start up a four-game series with the Angels. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to wbur.org. The warm and dry conditions combined with a strong wind mean an elevated potential of fire. Be careful if you're cooking outdoors this evening. Tonight should stay clear and dry and pretty warm for the overnight, only falling to about 64. Tomorrow, another sunny day, still warm, could peak at about 74 degrees. Weekend's going to be a lot different. A crush of clouds on Saturday could be stuck in the mid-50s. Sunday, cloudy with a chance of showers, only reaching about 52 degrees. This is WBUR at 620. WBUR supporters include Weston Nurseries, welcoming gardening season with a wide selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, and gardening products, Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham, WestonNurseries.com, and Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974, in Cambridge, Brighton, and at CambridgeNaturals.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. 30,000 athletes will compete in Monday's Boston Marathon. 
among them a trauma surgeon from Mass General Hospital who will be running for the 14th straight time. My name is uh, Dr. David King. Uh, I'm training for this year's marathon. Uh, we're finally in the taper phase, so I'm out at the Medford High School track just to knock out uh, about seven sort of easy miles. Well, he makes it look easy. He's used to the pressure. King's job is to perform surgery on people who've just been shot in a car wreck or struck by a bomb. He's in the Army Reserve as a combat surgeon. He's operated on more of his fellow troops in Iraq and Afghanistan than he can count. He signed up for the Army a month before September 11th and saw his deployments as a way to protect America from another terrorist attack. Then came the 2013 Boston Marathon. King ran the marathon that day, and his race went well. 2013 was the first time for me I didn't walk at least some portion of Heartbreak Hill. For some reason, I had the juice, and so I squeezed it. About an hour after King crossed the finish line, he hailed a cab and checked his phone. There was a flurry of urgent text messages asking if he was all right. He didn't know about the bombing, but something made him tell the cabbie not to take him home, but to take him to Mass General, where he worked. When I pulled up in front of MGH, there wasn't any sense of chaos. It just looked like a regular, quiet Monday. But for some reason, I decided to get out and went to our trauma on-call room where I changed into scrubs, put a surgical cap on, and grabbed my eye protection. And then I used an unusual stairwell to descend into the emergency department, where when I opened the door and turned the corner, I saw the first wave of patients just arriving. And when I saw the pattern of injury, I recognized it as something I'd seen on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan. Bilateral lower extremity injury combined with fragmentation, that is, um, you know, little pieces of metal or wood paper that had impacted really the entire rest of your body. This is a fairly characteristic pattern of injury for IEDs, and by any measure, these bombs on Boylston were improvised devices. But in the real-time action of trying to take care of people, I still didn't know exactly what happened. We were depending on staff who were watching the news coming into the operating room and telling us, but the farthest thing from my mind was an act of terrorism. I didn't do anything unique. I did the same thing all the surgeons did, and that is operated on the first patient I saw who needed surgery, and then as soon as that was done, went and grabbed the next patient that needed surgery, and then the next, and then the next. And because I ran that morning, I was naturally up very early to fuel, so breakfast. And at one point later that night, I remember standing at the operating room table just feeling a tiny bit woozy. And so there's a funny story here, if there can ever be anything funny that can occur on that day. Once all the patients' index operations were done, the entire trauma team assembled in a conference room. And I remember sitting down for the first time in that conference room, having this moment of just deceleration, thinking to myself, geez, it's been like 24 or 30 hours or something. And all I had was a banana and some Gatorade on the course. And I turned to a medical student who was helping like everyone else. And I asked them if they knew where the nutrition cabinet was and I said, I don't feel so well. Can you just run there and grab crackers, orange juice, ginger ale, anything? He ran down the hall, 
came back a few minutes later with a um, biohazard bag, the only bag he could find on short notice. I opened the biohazard bag, and what he had accidentally done was open the staff refrigerator, and he had like people's lunches, someone's taco salad that they had brought from home, and a, a thermos of coffee or you know, he had just opened the wrong door and just grabbed anything he could in a laudable desire to help. I'm not going to lie. I, I ate some of that food <laughs> and then apologized to our nursing staff <laughs> whose lunch I had eaten. But sometimes I think, geez, did I, did I really laugh that day? There's nothing to laugh at after something like that happens. But did I really chuckle in that moment? I, I did, and so did some other people, and I always wonder, should I feel guilty about that? And sometimes when I feel guilty for having a laugh in that moment, I have to remind myself that everyone copes just a little bit differently. The surgery and the reoperations and the retriage went on for days, and it got to the point that People would not leave the hospital. Nurses, doctors, anesthetists, respiratory therapists, food service workers, custodial staff, no one would go home. Everyone recognized that they were contributing to this overall response. I think about 2013 every time I go for a run and put on running shoes. Sometimes I, I reflect on just how tragic the entire thing is. Other times, I'm just very thankful for the ability to run, that just being able to lace up and, and get on the treadmill or, or go outside and put down some miles becomes a moment of thankfulness for me. To me, the entire decade is really just a story of resilience. It's a story of resilience of the city the resilience of the survivors and the injured. I can think of a handful of patients from the bombing who on the surface seemed to me to have nearly insurmountable struggles in front of them. And when I would talk to them about how they were going to conquer stairs in their home as a new amputee or how they were going to drive, it was always, yeah, I'm going to figure that out. This isn't six months later. This is me talking to them in their hospital bed. They're not even ready to go home yet. And they've already predetermined that they're going to succeed. That is incredible. Everyone has something left to give when they think there's nothing left in the tank. And the Boston Marathon finish line is a place where you can witness that every April. Dr. David King is a trauma surgeon at Mass General Hospital and a combat surgeon in the Army Reserve. He'll run the Boston Marathon Monday for the 14th time. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, marathon bombing survivors and married couple Patrick Downs and Jessica Kensky. They each lost a leg in the attack. She later had to have her other leg amputated. Now he works as a psychologist and she's a nurse. We'll hear how their jobs have helped their recovery and how their experiences as bombing survivors help them connect with their patients.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. This is 90.9 WBUR, a nice starlit night tonight. Mostly clear skies, temperatures falling to the mid-60s. Tomorrow should be beautiful, not quite as summery as today was. Temperatures in the mid-70s tomorrow, some clouds around along with a gusty wind. Weekend's going to be different. Heavy on the clouds Saturday, should be stuck in the mid-50s. And then for Sunday, cloudy skies for the most part. The chance of showers as well, only reaching about 52 degrees 79 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.30. Conductor Jean-Andrea Nozeda collects the finest antique string instruments, which, in his mind, are like sports cars. If you, to a good driver, you give a good Ferrari, the driver also will drive faster. (laughs) Which is why he loans them to his musicians, the National Symphony Orchestra's best-kept secret. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.